Welcome back, brothers and sisters. Our third speaker this morning is Brother Matthew Blewett of the Westville, South Africa Ecclesia. The theme for Brother Blewett's classes this week has been On the Road with the Ark. Today's class is entitled Coming Home. Brother Matthew. Well, good morning, brethren and sisters. I'd like to take this opportunity just to start with, uh, on behalf of my wife, Sister Petra, I'm not sure if she's in the room, and uh, my children, which definitely aren't, just to thank everyone for their wonderful love and uh, the grace that we've received while we've been here at Shippensburg. We haven't had a chance to speak to everyone, but certainly we've met a lot of new faces and brethren and sisters who have become Dear friends to us already in this short space of time, and it's, it's been a, an amazing experience for all of us, and I just want to commend you all for the, the care that you've shown for us and catering for our every need, and I was just thinking to myself, uh, surely there's a, a verse that could better describe uh, the, the care that you've shown to us and our appreciation, and uh, I was uh, sitting for a while thinking that it it must come from the lips of Paul, and I was happy to see that it comes from Philippians, and uh, the reason for that is because we are near Philadelphia, so I thought that that's appropriate when Paul said um, these words, which I say to you, because this is how we feel, uh, not because we desired a gift, but we desired fruit that may abound to your account, but I have all and abound and am full, having received of you the things which were sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. And everything we have received from you this week has been something that has been very well appreciated by us as a family. So thank you for your love and your care. And we certainly will be bringing that back to South Africa to tell them about your care for us there as well. So thank you for that. We've been on quite a journey with the ark. We, just to summarize yet again, have spent the first two sessions considering the principles of the ark, this principle of salvation that was bound up, God revealing himself, manifesting himself to us as our Savior, who was going to bring us to redemption and finally to manifest his glory. We then in the third part saw the way of salvation, how God has said to us that we will be saved through the process of resurrection, through the cutting off of death and through being given a new life. That is the life of the Lord Jesus. And then we saw how this parable of salvation continued finally to the conquest of the kingdoms of men when the walls of Jericho fell down. But in the midst of all of that judgment, there was this overriding mercy as a harlot was saved. And then finally yesterday we came to understand that God's salvation plan came with a cost because of human pride, human sin, That the ark indeed, in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ, went into captivity. That there was a bruising of the heel. But through that process, there was a gain. Because we, who were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, were given exposure to this master plan. And we're only in this room here now because they fell. And we were given opportunity to become a part of this salvation offered first to the people of Israel. And so we come now to our final part, which is an exciting section of Scripture for me that I've considered on many occasions in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 
as we watch the, the last major event associated with the ark, which is the bringing of the ark to Jerusalem through the guidance of King David. And it's an event that not only finishes our considerations, but again teaches us more of some of the key principles of salvation that we've learned all the way along as we've considered the Ark of the Covenant. And here we find the Ark, after having been returned uh, with the seven months that it had spent in the land of the Philistines, it had been returned, and as I said to you, it eventually ended up in the house of a man by the name of Abinadab. It stayed there for some years until finally a man by the name of David, came to the realization. And it's very interesting to immediately see the insight. And I know that I haven't uh, been able to attend the classes of of Brother Roger, but I'm sure he has opened to you the way in which David had this incredible insight into the things of God, which made him such a special man, a man after God's own heart. And here we, we see this, this man who had an insight that this ark needed to come home And for us, looking with perspective, it would seem obvious that the ark should come to Jerusalem, to Zion. But in the time of David, what history did Jerusalem have? What importance had it ever had? The prophecies and the the Psalms that we read about Jerusalem were still to come. But here was a man who had seen something in this place that was quite remarkable. And, and I've spent many, many, many times discussing this with brothers and sisters. What is it that allowed David to see that Jerusalem was the place where he would bring the ark? Eventually, of course, the Lord would confirm this in the, in, in the occasion of the numbering, where the Lord would say, this is the place which, of course, had been spoken about by Moses, that when you come into the promised land, God will show you the place where his name will be. But David had a very good feeling that it would be in Jerusalem. David uh, wrote in the Psalms, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. Yahweh hath said unto me, You are my son, this day have I begotten you. And so we may consider this for a while and we may think, well, perhaps there was a natural reason. Perhaps uh, when David saw Jerusalem, he knew it would be a good capital city. It was up on a hill. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, it still remains fairly up on a hill, although it's been built up around it. And you can see that if you were a, a soldier or a king, you would say, this is a good place to, to defend from the enemy. But knowing David, could that possibly have been his reasoning? Of course, the only history, perhaps, that he could have associated with Jerusalem was the history associated with that man, Melchizedek. And here's an interesting point, is that Melchizedek is only mentioned in three places. I use the word places because he's mentioned, obviously, a number of times in each of those places in the Bible. It's in Genesis and Hebrews that we know well, but of course Hebrews is quoting a Psalm of David. So no doubt when Paul brings to light all that we may not have seen in the record of Genesis concerning Melchizedek, he is doing it on the basis that David had picked up, that there would be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And for your reference, of course, that is in the Psalms. Psalm 110, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What did David see in Melchizedek? Well, of course, it was this great event with Abraham. But I think we must not also lose sight of what the Hebrew writer picks up in the sense that perhaps just like the Hebrew writer picks it up, that this Melchizedek, as we see in Hebrews 7, Verse 3, was without father and without mother, without any ancestry. It's the way the Spirit reveals Melchizedek to us. I remember for many, many years, 
being so concerned about that passage. And then our brother Harry Tennant just showing us how the Spirit chooses to reveal Melchizedek to us in that way. Because he was to be after the order of the Spirit, not of the flesh. And, and could it be that David had seen this? This Melchizedek who would be a priest after the order of not the flesh, which was a Levitical priesthood, but of the Spirit. And this is the kind of insight that David, of course, had. Second Samuel chapter 6 and at verse 2 says, He arose therefore with all the people that were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of Yahweh of hosts that dwells between the cherubim. And of course, the word there dwells again is in another version, I think the New International Version, and many other versions, the word is enthroned. And we've spoken about this before, this idea of the Ark of the Covenant representing God as a king, saving as a king. It was his throne. And it's, it's very relevant, I believe, in Second Samuel 6, as we see the story play out, that the chapter begins with that emphasis. Because I want to show you that as the story plays itself out, and we see David and we see the Ark, we're going to see the great spiritual insight that this man had of his position in relation to God. Remember, he was the king of Israel, anointed so. And now he was going to bring the ark. And what did he see in that process of bringing the ark back to Jerusalem? And I think as we read on in the story, we will see it is very clear. In fact, in the whole life of David, I'm convinced that he had a strategy. It was like his master strategy. And that was to reestablish in the eyes of Israel their true God. There's much evidence for this. We don't have time to go into it. But as you look at the life of David, there is a clear effort made by David to get Israel to see beyond him as the visible king back to seeing who their true king is. Of course, this is what Samuel had wanted right at the beginning. And of course, if you think about it, Ultimately, this is the work of the greatest son of David. We, we often think of the Lord Jesus Christ as a king, as an end in itself. But of course, the letter to the Corinthians says these words. It says, then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And then it says in verse 28, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, that is Jesus, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that is God, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So even Jesus, at the end of time, reveals to the world the true king of all the earth. Just like I believe David had as a strategy to try and teach the children of Israel. And so David was going to bring the ark home. He was going to bring it to Jerusalem. And no matter what our, our, his perception may have been of Jerusalem, what he wanted to do was to bring it into the center of Israel's existence. He had established Jerusalem now as the capital city, and he knew the ark needed to be there. And, and, and therein lies a great lesson, isn't there? You see, in the history of Israel, before they had come into the promised land, the ark had always been in the center. It had been in the center of the Holy of Holies, which was in the center of the tabernacle, which was in the center of the encampment of the children of Israel. It had always been the central aspect of their worship and their life. If you were going to visit a friend, you would always be crossing almost past where the ark was. You wouldn't be able to see it, but you would know it was there. 
If you were going across to another encampment on the other side of the tabernacle, you would need to go past where you knew the ark was. It was always visible. It was in the center of their dwelling. So David knew he needed to bring the ark back to the center of Israel's dwelling. And of course, therein lies the very first lesson for us. Is the ark the center of our living? Is it the center of our camp? Do people who meet us perceive immediately that our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with his Father is central to our lives? Or is it in some place, in our lives, yes, but in the house of Abinadab, out there, not really having that large an impact as it would have if it was in the middle of our house? In the land of your life, where is the ark residing? Does it have pride of place? Is it at the center to be seen by all? And so for Israel, this was not the case, and David was set to change it. Verse 3, And they set the ark on a new co- of God upon a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before Yahweh on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries, on timbrels, cornets, and cymbals. And they came to Nacon's threshing floor, and Uzzah put forth his hand to, to the ark of God, and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Uzzah, and God smote him there for his error, And there he died by the ark of God. Can you imagine the contrasting emotions of that day? Here was a day of celebration. This day that I guess David had prepared for, not well enough as we shall see. But this day of expectation. At last they were going to bring the ark away from from a man's home where it had been hidden for all these years. Now they were going to bring it to the center of Israel. And there was joy. The musical instruments were, were playing, the singing like we were here tonight was, was taking place, the celebration, the festivity. The ark was returning to its rightful place at the center of Israel. The tambourines, the castanets, the cymbals, the return of the king to his rightful place. The joy could hardly be contained. And then the oxen stumble and the ark begins to fall. And as it does what for all of us might seem like the natural thing to do. It's almost like a natural reaction. He stretches his hand out to prevent the ark from hitting the ground. In a flash, in a moment, Uzzah is lying dead on the ground. The music stops. The oxen are pulled to a halt. There is disbelief. There is anger. Tears begin to flow. And the project is aborted. What a contrast. From a moment of joy to a moment of sadness and devastation. And as we have focused on throughout this series, what are the principles of salvation taught to us in that moment? That that contrasting, conflicting moment as we see Uzzah lying dead next to the Ark of the Covenant. Well, first of all, this is true, is it not? That God is teaching us that with salvation, as free and full as it is, There is a way, there is a process. As much as it abounds with forgiveness and grace, that the depth of which we saw in the saving of Rahab the harlot, it can only be attained when a man approaches God 
on his terms. God is ever approachable, but will never allow us to dictate the terms. This is the failing point of many who will never come to God's solution as free and full as it is because human pride, the great enemy, is it not, means that they cannot accept God's processes. And I have met dear friends who I work with, whom I I love, who will never come to God because they will never accept His way. They understand all the principles. They love the virtues, but not that way. Not according to his way and his word. Just like the proud leader Naaman, who had a real lesson to learn, hadn't he, when God said, having been cursed to death with leprosy, and he was offered salvation on such clear terms, was it not? Dip yourself seven times in Jordan. But are not the rivers where I come from of Assyria far more effective for washing? They are larger, they are cleaner. This does not make sense. Wash in Jordan seven times and you will be clean. How many times do we hear people talking about God not wishing to follow his outdated or archaic commands of the Bible, but they believe in him, they worship him, but, but, but not all those funny rules you have in the Bible. I'm sure they were for another time. They don't make sense now. They don't make sense to me. Do we want to worship a God who just makes sense to us? God wouldn't require that of me. It doesn't make sense. You see, it made sense. Think about it. It made sense to use the sons of Abinadab to manage the transportation. The ark had been there for 20 years. They had grown up with the ark, but it was an error. It made sense to put the ark on a cart. The Philistines had done exactly the same. They had sent back the ark to Israel like that, but it was an error. It made sense to use oxen for transport of the ark. You might say, why? Well, walking would have taken too long. Israel needed to get its king in the center as quick as possible. We sometimes feel like this. We we need to make the things happen as quick as possible. It was a matter of urgency. But it was an error. It made sense to stop the ark from falling off the cart and smashing on the ground on this occasion of great joy. What an embarrassment that would have been. A simple nudge would do no harm. But it was an error. Four actions Brethren and sisters, it all made sense for for blatant contradictions of God's laws and terms as laid out in the commandments surrounding the dealings with the Ark of the Covenant. And the rules were simple. Number one, only the Kohathite family of the Levites were permitted to carry the Ark. The Ark must never be placed on a cart. The Ark must always be carried. The Ark must never be touched. Four rules, very simple. This is the way you work with my salvation. Obey them and you will have it full and free. Disobey them, and there is no room. God's salvation, friends, brethren and sisters, has nothing to do with common sense. God requires us to unequivocally, and this is the hardest part, isn't it? Accept his sense. That we approach him according to simple rules he has put in place, even when sometimes those rules make no sense to us at all. He calls this mode of approach faith. Believing even when sometimes it doesn't make any sense at all. And this is what is required of us to come and worship God in this way. And the anger, it says in verse 7, of Yahweh was kindled against Uzzah. And God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. And the word of God is abundantly clear on this matter. 
In the parallel reference in the first of Chronicles 15 verse 13, it adds a little phrase in that supports what we've been saying. It says, where David was, was reflecting on the situation, for because ye did it not at the first, Yahweh our God made a breach upon us, for that we sought him not after the due order. There was a due order. There was a way to work with salvation. We didn't follow it. We were in error. The second principle is one that we have visited before, that we see in this incident. The hand that saves is the hand that destroys. And and the record places, I think, almost an extra piece of detail by saying that Uzzah fell down right next to the ark. It creates this image in our mind, doesn't it? He could have just said that he was struck down. But we, we get this image of Uzzah lying dead next to what for all of Israel would have been a symbol of life. A dead man lying next to the pattern of salvation. The great juxtaposition, isn't it, of the ark of God's saving. As we've said before, at its core, it was a coffin. Without the gold and the mercy seat and the covering cherubim, it was a coffin, prepared and ready to take Uzzah off. Because without faith, without the covering of gold and all the other principles that we spoke of, that's all it was, and that's all it had become for Uzzah. A place of death. Without faith and an unquestioning commitment to obedience to our God, the ark is nothing more than that for us as well. God's plan for salvation can have no effectiveness for those who come to it without faith. By contrast, the same hand that saves becomes the hand that destroys. It is the great principle of God's plan. The water that saved Noah destroyed all the people of his time. The wars that crushed down the children of Jericho or the people of Jericho is the same war that saved Rahab. This is the goodness and severity of the God we worship. And one final principle that we see taking place in this story of the movement of the ark and the failure in the occasion of the breach upon Uzzah. Is that the law of the harvest is a is a fundamental principle of salvation, and 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 we see this happening over again. I'm not just talking about bringing people to baptism here. I'm talking about ultimately saving people, which we are working through in our own lives at this time. And I refer to the law of the harvest because there is this law that God has in place, which is a process by which we are saved. We live in a world where everything happens quickly, isn't it? And it's getting quicker and faster and faster. We have instant everything. And being in, in America for just over a week, there are fast food stores wherever I look. I never have to even imagine where to find one. Because if someone just has the thought that they would like food, we need to place it in front of them. That's the world we live in. And so, of course, when it comes to salvation, the temptation is that we can have the same. But you see, God taught what I believe is the great law to the farmers of the time and and continues, if any of you are farmers, to teach us about the law of the harvest. And that is that when it comes to salvation, God works with men and women through a slow and persistent development of their faith through a process of endurance. The farmer, you see, he plows the field. That's the first step. And then he waits for the right time, just the right time to plant the seed. And then he must wait and and, and have faith that the early rains will come. And the early rains, if by God's grace come, then he will wait and see the saplings begin to grow. And then he will have to wait for the the, the next set of rains to come to ensure that those saplings grow into, into healthy plants. And then he has to wait 
in hope that those healthy plants will produce the fruit for which he had started the whole process in the beginning. And this is the law of the harvest. It is a slow but consistent process. You might say, well, what does this have to do? Very good point, Brother Matthew. But what does this have to do with this Ark of the Covenant lying on the floor? The point is this. God said, you will never take it on a cart. You will carry it. Imagine how long it would have taken to send men all the way up to where Abinadab was to carry this fairly heavy item on their shoulders from there all the way to Jerusalem. God was saying, my ark will move at a certain pace. My salvation will move at a pace. Perhaps not the pace that you wanted at, but this is the way that I work with men and women. And notice how when David brings the ark back, you must have seen this before. The second time, it says this in, in verse 13. It was so, this is the second uh, bringing back of the ark. It was so that when those who bore the ark of Yahweh had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened calf. He slows it down even more than the commandment it asked for. I, I, I believe he's got the lesson. Let's, we, we're not going to rush this. We will, we will take six paces. We'll have a sacrifice. And then we'll take another six paces and we'll have a sacrifice. The whole process is slowed down. There's a lesson there for us. God is working in us our final salvation. And sometimes, especially in the midst of trial, it is slow. Time just slows down in tribulation. Because all the routine of life goes. It's the routine of life that makes things go fast. The Mondays are the same, and the Tuesdays are the same, and the Sundays are the same. And God brings crisis into your life, and all of that goes, and time slows down. And there he works with us, slowly working faith and salvation in us. And so it is here. This principle, I believe, of the law of the harvest is being taught. Having experienced the tragedy of Uzzah, the ark is brought to the house of one Obed-Edom the Gittite, and David returns to Jerusalem to reassess his plans. It says in verse 9, David was afraid of Yahweh that day, and he said, How shall the ark of Yahweh come to me? So David would not remove the ark of Yahweh to him into the city of David, but David carried it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. It's an important question, isn't it? How am I going to get the ark of Yahweh to me? How am I going to bring this, this message of salvation to the center of Israel? And of course, we've already found the answer. Only through the due process, through the way that God had said it should be done. It would be done through the carrying of those who were from Levi. In the Chronicle record, it says in First of Chronicles 15 verse 1, which is the parallel re- record, And David made him a houses in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched for it a tent. And David said, verse 2, None ought to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for them hath Yahweh chosen to carry the ark of God and minister unto him forever. And David gathered all Israel together to Jerusalem to bring up the ark of Yahweh unto his place which he had prepared for it. And so here is David with a different view completely. He's obviously gone back and looked at the detail. He's slowed down. He's prepared now. You see, that's the other aspect of why we have to slow down. There is a sense of preparation. Remember what Amos says to Israel, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. There's a process of preparation. He prepares a tent. Everything is made ready so that the ark can be returned. Interesting detail there. Interesting detail. Even though David is slowing down, he may well have thought to himself, maybe I should wait until we move on to the process of the temple, and that is complete, and then bring the ark. Because 
really speaking, there was no precedent for just a tent in which the ark should dwell. Not that I can find, and perhaps one has been revealed to you, and then I'll be shown by all of you afterwards. There was no real precedent by which he should just put a tent and put the ark in it. But it's an interesting insight that we're learning here from David, and perhaps the lesson is this. Although the ark needed to be moved in the correct way and there needed to be that process or that slow process, it doesn't stop us from doing things until everything is ready. David knew how important it still was to get the ark at the center of Israel's worship. And so although he was now going to transport it in the correct way, he was prepared to still do it, even though the temple was not yet complete. And I think that's a lesson also for us on the other extreme, to balance these things, that sometimes... We want everything to be in place before we move forward. We want everything. And, and, and this often happens when you speak to people who are preparing for baptism. They, they, they almost feel that they need to reach the point that none of us will ever reach before they can be baptized. Before they can bring salvation into their heart. And of course, perhaps David is teaching us that lesson. The temple would come, but it was important that the ark get into the center of Israel's dwelling. Become the center of their hearts the center of their life. And so David studies the correct procedures. He realizes that the Levites must must carry the ark. And of course, as you are well-schooled in the things of God, you will know that it was not only the Levites, but it was the children of Kohath that were given the responsibility. And so I want to spend a few moments on Obed-Edom because it's always worth a good discussion. Um, I think we have a slide on this. You always might be wondering why we have this up. There's a couple of verses, and I've just got them up there, that I think uh, um, uh, uh, put together quite a nice idea concerning Obed-Edom. And I know that there are a number of views that we can have of Obed-Edom. I think by stringing together 1 Chronicles 26 verse 1, I'm just going to read the verses. They are up there for you. Uh, Concerning the divisions of the porters of the Kohats, was a whole bunch of interesting names. Included in there, verse 4, moreover the sons of Obed-Edom. So in the first of Chronicles 26, Obed-Edom, it would seem, is one of those of the sons of Korah. Uh, If we link that to Numbers 16, verse 1, we find that Korah was one of the sons of Kohath. So although we don't learn it directly in 1 Chronicles 26, we learn that the Obed-Edom of 1 Chronicles 26 would have been a Kohathite. And then, of course, if you go to Numbers 4 and at verse 15, we learn that the... um, Porters, those who were to carry the ark, as I've said before, were the Kohathites. So those three verses over there, those first three are going, are, are, are quite nice in themselves to show that the Obed-Edom of First Chronicles 26 is a Kohathite who would have been the right person to carry the ark. So God, uh, David, had made the correct choice. Now, of course, the leap we've had to make is that the Obed-Edom of First Chronicles 26 is the Obed-Edom of Second Samuel chapter 6. All right, so let's, let's consider this for a moment. Um, and there are a number of, 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 of views we can take on this. Um, first of all, this would seem correct because this name Obed-Edom is quite a, a strange name. It's not like it's a common name used in, in, in Israel's uh, naming. So it would be unlikely, to me at least, that there are a number of Obed-Edoms, one who happens to be a, a Kohathite and, and another who, who happens to be a Gittite, as we have this Obed-Edom described as. And so... A number of suggestions have come up to deal with the one issue, and that is that he is called Obed-Edom the Gittite. Um, well, these are the, the possible explanations, because if he's a Kohathite, how can he be a Gittite? 
For one, you could ignore the other references to Obed-Edom, as I've been suggesting, and say that this Obed-Edom in 2 Samuel chapter 6 is not the same as the one that we have here. But that would seem to just break all the types. The fact that David had realized it needed to be carried by the Levites, I don't think that's a reasonable suggestion. So hopefully with your permission, we'll put that one out of the way. The second suggestion that is often given is this, that Obed-Edom was a Levite who happened to live in a city called Gath. Hefer. In fact, in the, your central margin next to Gitta, it will refer you back to uh, uh, where this town, Gath Hefer, is mentioned as one of the Levitical towns. And uh, Anger's Concordance suggests that people that lived in the town of Gath Hefer may have been called Gittites. Yes, this is a possibility I put to you. Uh, the reason I put it's a possibility only is because when we find Gittites mentioned, in other words, they clearly seem to be the people that have come from Gath, where the same phrase is used. So it would seem awkward that this phrase would be used on one occasion just to refer to a Levite, and the other occasions to refer to men who had come from the land of Philistia as we meet them later on in the experiences of David. And having said that, even if we accept that, that, that argument, which may be true, uh, we would wonder why one of the cities that they lived in was called gath we would still question why was a city that was to be uh, populated by the, the, the Levites actually given the name Gathrimon, where the name Gath, as we know, was associated with the Philistines. It was a, a name of, of the Gentile nations. I want to suggest to you, of course, a third option, which of course I think is the right option, otherwise I wouldn't have left it to last. And that is, come with me to Joshua 13. Joshua 13, where we have the Gittites specifically mentioned. Joshua 13. Very interesting name, Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom. Joshua 13, verse 3. There was some land that hadn't been possessed. It says in verse 2. This is the land that yet remains, Joshua's message. All the borders of the Philistines and all Geshuri from Sihor, which is before Egypt, even unto the borders of Ekron northward, which is counted to the Canaanites, five lords of the Philistines, the Gazathites, the Ashdothites, the Eshkelonites, the Gittites, and the Ekronites, also the Avites. So, the Gittites were a part of those nations that had not been conquered in the days of Joshua. Now, where do we come across them next? Well, first of Samuel 6. The last reference on the, on the slide. First of Samuel 6. We come across to first of Samuel 6. It says here, the five lords of the Philistines. Well, these are the five lords that Joshua had been speaking of. When they had seen it, that is the ark, they returned to Ekron the same day, and uh, these are the golden emeralds. Remember, they made those five tumors and five mice, which the Philistines returned for a trespass offering unto Yahweh, for Ashdod, one, for Gaza, one, for Ashkelon, one, for Gath, one, for Ekron, one. So here we, we, we have, outside of the link that we've made between Obed-Edom, the Gittite, potentially with the Kohathites and the... Completely separate, we have now these Gittites also being linked to the ark. By coincidence? We have them mentioned as Gittites, as those who remained. And now we have them being one of those lords, one of those nations that was exposed to the ark. And this is the point that we were talking about yesterday. And I suggest to you that this Obed-Edom, the Gittite, 
was a man who had converted. Having been someone exposed as a Gentile to the things of God, to Yahweh, and having seen the ark, his interest was specifically in the ark. And that he became one of those who became of the order of the Levitical order. And he became a Gentile, grafted in. That's about the most proof I can give you of that. Suffice it to say only one last thing. That when the true ark came, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was going up towards Calvary, and he couldn't bear the weight of the burden of the cross, and he fell down. It was a Gentile, was it not? Simon of Cyrene, who was called to help him carry the cross. Maybe all these patterns were pointing together, that even at this stage, God was sending out the message that there would be a place for the aliens of the commonwealth of Israel. This man, Obed-Edom, the Gittite, a Kohathite, oh yes, because God can of these stones raise up a seed to Abraham. Because the children of Abraham are the children of faith. A man who shows faith like Rahab showed can be grafted right in. Rahab was grafted right into the royal line. Do we think that Obed-Edom couldn't be grafted in to become of the order of the Kohathites? Of course he could. And here he is, carrying the Ark of the Covenant to the place where it belongs, to the place where God had meant it to be. Verse 14 of 2 Samuel 6. And David danced before Yahweh with all his might. And David was girded with a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of Yahweh with shouting with the sound of the trumpet. You see, for David, this was a day of celebration because this was the king of Israel. Not him. It's a great study. We're going to talk a bit more about it in a moment. But this was the king of Israel. And, and when, when that ark was coming up towards the gates of Jerusalem, I believe many of David's psalms were spoken of reflecting on that occasion. As for David, he could see whether the people could see it is another story, but he could see the king returning, coming home. David says in Psalm 99, Yahweh reigns that the people tremble. He sits between the cherubim. Oh, there's, there's thoughts about the ark. Let the earth be moved. Yahweh is great in Zion. He is high above all the people. David's mind in Psalm 99 is on the ark. And the fact that he's enthroned between the cherubim and he's coming back to Jerusalem as king. Look at Psalm 132. It says this in Psalm 132, verse 8. Arise, O Yahweh, into your rest, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Well, we're going to see they're wearing the clothes of the priests. And let your saints shout out for joy. For your servant David's sake, turn not away the face of your anointed. For Yahweh has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And of course, we know this, this was more of uh, one of the Psalms that Hezekiah had brought to bear. But the point is the same, that the ark would return to Jerusalem. They would come as a king to Jerusalem. And so we read, as we continue in the episode of Second Samuel, and the joy and the excitement, but there is a slight sad side, shall we say, to this incident that teaches us a bit more about the attitude of David and the attitude of those surrounding. And we pick it up in verse 20. Then David returned to bless his household, and Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today, who uncovered himself today in the eyes of the handmaids of his servants as one of the vain fellows shamelessly uncovereth himself. Now, 
In a way, I'm glad Michael said these words because it again teaches us about the mind of this man, David. Now, I know that there's a lot we can draw from the fact that when he took off his robes, it says that he was wearing a linen ephod, and there is certainly a relationship there with with the priests. But but I just want us to take a further step back. Because when Michael speaks to, to David, she says, how glorious, notice the words, how glorious is the king of Israel, and the words there which mean uncover, in fact mean disrobe. That makes a lot more sense. Here was Michael, the daughter of Saul, the man who had exhibited pride his whole life, that had been his issue between him and his God. And she sees David, and all she can see is that he's the king. And this was a a very public moment for David. This was a moment for him to draw the support of all Israel. And instead of doing that, he takes his royal robe off. He divests himself of his kingship. How glorious did the king of Israel appear, she says. But the mind of David? I'm not your king. Can't you see? Here comes your king. And in the presence of this king, I take my robes off. So that all can see that it's not me I want you to watch. I want you to see the ark as the king of all the earth. Your true king, Israel, is coming to Jerusalem. To take up its throne. To rule from Jerusalem. And of course, on Michael, this whole point is lost. She has lost the point. And David says to her, It was before Yahweh, you see, this is where his mind is, which chose me before your father and before all his house to appoint me, oh, isn't there detail there, ruler over the people of Yahweh, over Israel. Therefore will I play before Yahweh. Just in this one verse, he doesn't use the word Melchi or Melach for king, which she had just used, how glorious to the king of Israel. In the presence of the true king, he was just a ruler. He was someone who was given the opportunity to act on behalf of the king, not the king himself, who has chosen me to be a ruler instead of your father Saul. But look at what he says here. And I will be more vile than thus, and more base in mine own sight. And of the maidservants which you have spoken of them shall be I had be had in honor. Here is the mind of a man who comes and understands the salvation of God. Because it begins with this state of mind. It begins with humility. None of us can begin even to walk on the process of salvation until we get to this point of disrobing any pride we may have and of being able to repeat these words of David. I will become more vile and I will base myself in the presence of God Almighty. When a man comes to recognize his condition in the sight of God, when a man or a woman comes to humble herself, then he can make his dwelling place. Thus saith Yahweh, The heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? Where is the place that I can rest? For all those things hath my hand made, and those things that have been, saith Yahweh, but to this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. And there was David, and beside him Michael, the daughter of Saul, A greater contrast you could not have. The one, full of pride, could not see the kingship or the salvation. The other, the man who had been made king, but never saw himself as a king. 
It's an interesting thing, and, I, and it's a little bit off the topic, but I cannot bear not to share it with you, is that when you look at the life of David, he is divesting himself always of kingship to, to make sure that Israel knew who the true king was. You will see this in his speech on a number of occasions. And have you ever noticed this? This is the way our God works. Have you ever noticed in Matthew chapter 1, come with me to Matthew chapter 1, when the, the genealogy comes to bear? The book, verse 1, of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judas and his brethren. Judas begat Phares and Zara of Tamar, and Phares begat Esrom, and Esrom begat Aram, and Aram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nason, and Nason begat Selmon, and Selmon begat Boaz of Rahab, and Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David, and David... And Jesse begat David the king. And David the king begat Solomon, of her that had been of the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the king, no. And Solomon begat Rehoboam. And Rehoboam begat Abiah. And Abiah begat Asa. They were all kings. There's only one king recorded in Matthew chapter 1. And his name is David. The one man who didn't want kingship, the one man who recognized the true king of Israel in the royal line is called king. How marvelous is God's grace towards us when we choose to approach him in humility and the way that he has given to all of us. And so the ark is, is brought back and the ark is brought into the tabernacle that David had pitched, verse 17, and set in his place in the midst of the tabernacle, that David had pitched for it, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before Yahweh. And then, as we know in the record, we meet the ark again in the time of Solomon when the ark is brought finally after the temple is prepared. In verse 6 it says, The priest brought the ark of the covenant after all those years of building the temple. Finally it's brought into a, into a home of stones, representative of the final ecclesia. The Ark of the Covenant of the Yahweh into its place, into the oracle of the house, 1 Kings 8, 6, to the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. And it came to pass, when the priests would come out of the holy place, after having placed the Ark, that the cloud fooled the whole house of Yahweh. So the priest could not stand to minister because of the house, because of the cloud, for the glory of Yahweh had fooled the house of the Lord. And so we're brought almost to this wonderful conclusion of the pattern. The ark had been brought home and finally put in the temple. And the cloud comes in and it fools the temple and it says, the glory of Yahweh filled the house. And in pattern, of course, it's the end of the plan of salvation. Again, we have returned back to that point. When all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, the cloud has filled the house and the earth is filled with God's salvation and His glory. Can I bring you to our last reference concerning the Ark of the Covenant? And it's in the Old Testament. We have, of course, been to the final reference in the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 3. And I think, in a way, this sums up all we've been saying about this incredible pattern. Jeremiah 3. It's a prophecy of the future. And it includes mention of the Ark of the Covenant, this incredible symbol that we've considered together these few days. And it shall come to pass, when you be multiplied and increased in the land in those days, saith Yahweh, they shall say no more, the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, 
Neither shall it come to mind, neither shall they remember it, neither shall they visit it, neither shall that be done anymore. Why not? Verse 17. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of Yahweh. And all the nations shall be gathered unto it, to the name of Yahweh, to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. When that which is real has come, brethren and sisters, the pattern is no longer required. When ultimately, God is all in all, and the reality of His dwelling is with us here, they shall no longer talk of the pattern. All the copies, all the shadows can disappear in the light of the true salvation of God revealed from heaven. The coffin has taken us all the way from an understanding of human flesh to this point of great salvation. The pattern must and will always give way to the heavenly reality. And therein lies an important lesson for us. And it's sometimes so difficult for us to understand this. Even when we think of the all in all, that these patterns that have been so relevant to us will finally give way to the spiritual reality. How we battle with even the words of the Lord Jesus when he speaks of the pattern of marriage and says that at that time they shall neither marry nor be given in marriage. This great pattern. What he's saying at the time of the final reality, when the reality of that pattern, the Lord Jesus Christ has finally been married to her church and all has been brought together. There's no need for the pattern. That's difficult for us to understand, but that's the point. The pattern will always give, re- give way to the spiritual reality. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of Christ. The ark is replaced by this marvelous spiritual reality. And this, my dear brothers and sisters, is our hope, and this is our vision. Amen.